0: describes this picture of heaven saying day and night all the created beings of heaven never stop saying holy 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 is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come and whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns, their glory, their achievements, all the earthly things before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and had. Their being. This describes heaven as a place where day and night there is the experience of God's presence, and as we are humbled before Him in His magnificent glory, the joy and love saturate all that is. And when we when I see these reports of what's going on down at Asbury University in Kentucky. It's as if there's a tiny, tiny little picture of that, of this heavenly reality. And Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That it is God's desire that as we humble ourselves before him, that we can expect him to come and bring about what only he can do among us. And from what I'm seeing and hearing, that the lives are being transformed. And it's not human manufactured. It's not just emotionalism. But it's as they humble themselves before God that people are walking out changed, transformed. Something that can only be done by God. And so, Lord, I want to pray in this place that your kingdom would come, that your will be would be done among us as it is in heaven. God, that... We, we, we humble ourselves before you and we say that you are the only one worthy, deserving of all glory, honor, and power. You alone are the creator. You're the one who gave us being and breathes life into us. You only are holy, almighty. You always have been, you are, and you always w- will be. And so we stand in awe of you, our God. And as we stand in awe of who you are, we also recognize that we are still standing. We are standing because you have poured out your grace and your mercy and your love upon us. That you loved us so much that you would send your very own son to die for us and rise again to give us new life that we might be with you for all eternity. And Lord, as we await that day, when we will be with you forever in the very reality we just sang and in what we just read. You have not yet taken us out of this world, but we are very much in it. And so we ask, Lord, according to your steadfast love and mercy, that you would come and pour yourself out upon us. May we experience the transformation that comes only by you. May you come And do a work that we can't manufacture. We can't programatize. We can't um, emotionalize. But it's something that only you can do. And God, so we, we lay down ourselves before you. We open up our hearts to you. And we say, come, do whatever you want to do among us. Do whatever you want to do. We love you. We praise you. And as we open your word, may our hearts be ready to hear whatever it is that you want to show us. Humbled and open before you are God. Come speak. Come do whatever you want to do. Speak to our relationships. Speak to our thought patterns. Speak to our lives. Speak whatever you want to speak to. Come. In Jesus' mighty name and everybody said, amen. You may have a seat. You may have a seat. Oh, God, He's good. It is such a privilege to be able to worship with you guys today. I see a lot of new faces in here today. And so, man, um, that's always thrilling, too. We hope that you feel so welcome. Um, guys, we're going to take a bit of a deep dive today. All right? So, get ready. <laughs> Um, A bit of a deep dive. But before I do that, I'm going to start with some of a a big question. Some of you guys, you'll have an answer right away, because I know you, right? I know your, your personality. Some of you, you're always ready to go. Others of you, you may want to say, I wish I had a couple days to think about this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If you had one word to describe the state of society around us today, what word would you use? (laughs) <laughs> all right all right first service like throughout like nobody talked back to me so <laughs> but a surprise I get people talk back but but seriously if you had one word to explain how the world is doing in this cultural moment keep it to yourself for now but what would it what would it be what would it be so in, in 2019 A well-known cultural research group called the Barna Group put together one of the largest studies ever, mainly focused on 18 to 35-year-olds across the world. Now, granted, 18 to 35 is a limited scope, so it's not indicative of everyone, but the results are still very telling. They they surveyed 15,000 individuals from 25 different countries, asking them about their values, their goals, their relationship with God or faith, state of being, all of that. And by the time they gathered and summarized all the data, they found one word that very much describes our cultural moment. After all the research, how did they describe the state of the world today? Anxious anxious. In fact, they ended up calling the first part of that study the age of anxiety. Now, does that surprise any of you? No, probably not. And that survey was 2019, so it was taken before the pandemic. And when they refer to anxiety, though, they don't mean like the individual mental health challenge, but more the, like the systemic sense, the macro level of uncertainty, the overwhelming feeling, unsettled feeling that it's not going to be okay. And anxiety manifests differently in everyone, but the CEO of the Barna Group, David Kinneman. Concluded that one of the central aspects of the experience of young adults, and I'd say many adults today, around the world, is anxiety. He says, quote, anxiety blankets our society and our lives like a thick, wet, bone-chilling fog. Well, why? Why so much anxiety? Well, that's a question much bigger than I have time for today, but we could certainly guess. Overwhelming quantity and speed of change. The incessant need to stay connected. Complexities of globalism. The continued blurred lines between what is true or good. The breakdown of institutions and families like families who help absorb anxiety. In addition, the, the, the gap, the divide between opposing sides has grown wider. The ability to have calm conversations has grown weaker. The pressure to stay up to date has grown weightier. So I'm sure there's a lot of words that could describe this cultural moment, but anxiety is certainly one of them. It's chronic. And you probably didn't need a survey to tell you that. But my next question. As followers of Jesus in the 21st century, what word would describe us? While I wish a lot could be different in our world, Am I different from it? Last week in our series, Great is His Faithfulness, we read about God's covenant with the Israelites and how He had them to be a set-apart people, different from the other nations, people groups around them, meant to be like God. But as time moved on, they proved much the same. And many days, I don't feel much different either. I struggle to observe, like with all this anxiety too, it can be all-consuming We cannot avoid the anxiety around us, but what do we do with it? And does it characterize us too? So today, we're going to look at God's people, Israel, how they tried to find relief from the anxiety of their own day, but ended up very much like everybody else. But how can we confidently turn as followers? Where can we turn, excuse me, in this age of anxiety as followers of Christ? And so look at that. We're going to look at Israel's search for a king and God's covenant promise to his appointed king named David. And by the end, I hope we all see that historical moments like ours can actually be ripe for fresh moves of God. I'm going to say that again. I believe historical moments like ours can be ripe for fresh moves of God. Do you believe that? But first, I want to be different. But I realize how easy it is to just absorb the anxiety around me. Christ modeled something very different. There was a lot of anxiety around him, but he never let it control him, even though I often do. And so whether it was the Israelites 3,000 years ago or today, let's be aware. How do anxious environments try to steer us to take our eyes off of Jesus? Where does it try to fix our focus? As anxiety grows around us, what's that gravitational pull? What does it try to assert upon us? Well, see, when anxiety is chronic, our human impulse is to look to leaders And structures for relief. In our series the last few weeks we've traveled quite the chronological ground. We started with God, His creation, and then His covenant with Noah. And then we've looked at Abraham, and then Abraham's grandson Jacob. And last week we saw God's covenant with Jacob's descendants, the Israelites, You remember, God brought them out of slavery in Egypt, and he promised them a land that was going to be their own, the same land he promised to Abraham. But they stop off in a wilderness and spend a lot of time there called Sinai, where God shares his vision with them, that they were to be in relationship with him. He called a kingdom of priests, and they were to become like him. He called a holy nation or set apart people. Well, now we're going to pick up Israel's story, but 400 years after Sinai. Now they're no longer in the wilderness. They're no longer in Sinai. They're in the land God promised to them, but it's an anxious and dark time. They did not have a king at that moment because the Lord, their God, was meant to be their king. Yet, over and over, the Israelites turned from the Lord. And as a result, he allowed their enemies to oppress them. And they would cry out to God to save them. And he would typically send a leader called a judge to deliver them. And this happened over and over and over again throughout a book called Judges. Until we reach a book called 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, again, 400 years after Sinai. What was it like in those days? 1 Samuel 3.1 says, In those days the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. Few people were listening for God, so he rarely spoke. That doesn't mean religious activity stopped. It just means that no one was listening for God and anxiety was only growing. And eventually, in the restless anxiety, the elders of Israel went to the last remaining judge, a guy named Samuel. And they demanded a king like the nations. Remember, the Lord their God was meant to be their king. And that was going to make them different. Partly it would make them different from all the other nations around them. But now they said, no, nah, we want our own king just like Everybody else who, in their words, would go out before us and fight our battles. We want a king who will absorb the anxiety for us. Because as anxiety became normal, even the leaders of Israel stopped listening to God and started looking for a king who could look like a savior. So God gave them a king named Saul. And man, it's like Saul was built for the photo ops. Now he was tall, young, handsome. The women loved him. The men wanted to be him. Perfect king, it seemed. But what was stirring underneath the surface of all of that is that when anxiety runs unchecked in us, We run from God to what we can see for security. And instead of laying down their fears before their heavenly king, the people of Israel wanted an impressive earthly king who could absorb their anxiety. They wanted their own leaders, structures, systems to ensure their security so that dependence on God could be optional. Now fast forward to our time. Is that not the whole pursuit of this secular experiment the last two to three hundred years? We live in a world that wants to make dependence on God optional. We're dealing with anxiety, so we bring our problems before the brilliant people of scientific rationalism. (laughs) They'll, They'll have the answer. We don't know what's going to happen, so we put our hard-earned money before hoping that in the stability of an economy, or we look to strong leaders or politicians who will help preserve our way of life. And politicians don't mind. Clearly, they don't mind even inflaming or pandering to that very anxiety to convince us we need them. But through all of these things, it's as if we have set up a society that Says, you know what? I only need to turn to God sometimes. <laughs> and it has created what an Australian pastor named Mark Sayers called secular autopilot. We can just continue to exist. We don't have to listen for God. Now, get it scientific discovery, strong economy, strong leaderships, all gifts from God for our good, but they make poor substitutes for God. And even in the midst of our world and our society, how are we doing? If we had an anxiety meter that was just judging where we are right now, and this is kind of like, we're, we're, we're like, okay. Where do you think that meter reads? <laughs> we are high charged. And it's been, it's been revealing as we've gone through so many challenging seasons as a, as a globe, <laughs> pandemic, Talking about election seasons, economic downturns. In our society, we we watch and see that they continue to try to bring the weight of their anxieties before the brilliant and the strong because they assume that that's all we have. But as followers of the heavenly king, how are we doing? I have to ask myself that too. Are we still treating dependence on God as optional? Are we still trying to manage the weight of our anxieties and still looking to political leaders to be the ones who will hopefully resolve these things? One thing that makes me sad is how often when I talk to people outside the church, how many of them associate evangelicalism with a political movement? Because in their minds, so many have just sought after earthly kings instead of the heavenly one. We've taken our anxieties before lesser things, looking for relief. All have been poor substitutes for God. And in Israel's story, Saul may have been visually impressive, but he could not bear the weight of Israel's anxious expectations and he crumbled. And in the end, every artificial human appointed savior will crumble. But as followers of Christ, even in an anxiety-charged society, what's the way forward? How are we meant to be different? What does it look like for us to be his set-apart people for the sake of the world? In our world, God is bringing about a renewal through those who are after his heart. Let me say that again. God is bringing about a renewal through those who are after his, what? Heart. Heart. Israel wanted their own king like the nations, but the Saul experiment failed. He may have looked impressive, but he tried to please people more than God. So Samuel told him, your kingdom will not endure, Saul. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. Now that day in 1 Samuel, not much different than ours. People were asking a lot of questions. How do we get rid of our anxiety? How do we control the future? How do we get people to like us? How do we make sure that everything's going to be okay? But few people were asking, what's God's heart? What does God want? What is his will? And that is the question at the beginning of every great move of God. And so God led Samuel to a town called Bethlehem. You heard of it. And in Bethlehem lived a man named Jesse who had eight sons. The first son named Eliab shows up and Samuel right away is like, oh, this is the guy. This guy is tall and he is jacked. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. There it is again. And the Lord leads Samuel right through the next six sons also for the same reasons. But who did the Lord choose? The eighth son, the smallest, the least likely in the eyes of men. He was described as ruddy, which means redhead. I'm just throwing that in there for parentheses. <laughs> At least theories are. <laughs> but, but he was a shepherd boy. Here's a shepherd boy in a pasture, a boy named David. From God's eyes, we may be the weakest or the smallest, but if we're after God's heart, he can do great things through us. Let me say that again. You might, be, you might not have the degrees on your walls. You may not have the experience You may not have all the connections that some people do. You may not have all the things that the world says is necessary for success. But if your heart is after God's, then when he moves upon you, he always does what he's going to do. What is a man after God's own heart? Well, in an anxious environment, a man after God's own heart keeps his eyes on the Lord As the nine-foot-tall Goliath melted the Israelites in fear, David stepped up and said, he cannot defy the armies of the living God. A man after God's own heart hides his word in theirs. David wanted to know God. So it says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You remain close. In an anxious environment, a man after God's own heart keeps his heart honest. Did David struggle with anxiety? You betcha. But he poured it out in the Psalms, wrestling honestly, until he discovered the strength and hope of God again. A man after God's own heart may mess up, but then he'll be willing to turn back to the Lord and confess. And after his egregious sin with Bathsheba, David didn't try to justify his sin. He didn't try to make excuses. He didn't try to blame it on anybody else. But he came right before the God saying, Create in me a clean heart, O God. I could keep going. But you get the picture. Even if we are the weakest or the smallest, if we're after God's heart, He can do great things through us. Remember, what I've noticed in my own life, though, at least a tendency that God has pointed out in me, is that oftentimes when I face a problem that's bigger than me or a situation and I don't know what to do, my first reflex is to look at my own resources and say, Lord, am I smart enough? Am I strong enough? Am I experienced enough? Am I fill in the blank enough? And if the answer is no to those questions, anxiety. Anxiety. That I do try to live as if dependence on God is optional. Because I don't like, I don't know about you guys, I don't like feeling insufficient. I don't like feeling anxious. But God is teaching me that my weakness My insufficiency is not something to hide or deny for it can be the very thing that brings me back to him over and over where I learn to depend on him. And it's at that place that we learn to ask, God, what's your heart? God, what do you want? What do you want from my life? And as our hearts remain open to God's heart. We can, he can do through us what only he can do. And so God took a shepherd boy and raised him to be a king. And in David's time, God gave Israel rest from all its enemies. And one day when he was in his palace, the word of the Lord came to David through a prophet named Nathan. And this is God's covenant promise to David. Pay attention to this, how God can use even the, the least likely. He says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8, Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture from tending the flock and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. In other words, you were a shepherd in a field with sheep. I, I made you a, a shepherd over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did in the beginning and have done ever since in the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will, give, I will also give rest from all your enemies. Who's doing it? Who's the, who's the one acting here? God and that's the difference see Saul's story he was a picture-perfect king but in the end his kingdom crumbled but David was the least likely but God used him a man after his heart to renew his people but that's not all God said to David that's just the beginning because next, God's promise is going to explode like New Year's fireworks. Not just to David, but branching out to all of his descendants and even lasting today, lighting up the sky of our anxious world with vibrant hope. I cannot overstate the significance of God's promise to David here, for it's not just for him, but it's for us. Listen to the second half of verse 11. The Lord declares to you, Into David, that the Lord Himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up and your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house... Meaning his dynasty. And your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now just, you remember God's promise to Abraham. How it wasn't just for Abraham but also his descendants. Well the same is true here. This wasn't just for David but also his descendants. And it's not a conditional promise dependent upon his Behavior, or What he does. But it's grounded in the very faithfulness of God. His words here. What are they? He said when David's days are done. When he goes to rest with your ancestors. He says God will raise up an offspring from his body. And establish his kingdom. And at first you're like okay. So that must refer to Solomon. who is David's son. But then he says. That kingdom will endure forever forever. In the Hebrew, forever means forever. (laughs) See what I did there? Cool, cool language trick, yeah? And we see that this promise here wasn't just for Solomon. But it certainly was for all those Davidic kings who would come after Solomon. What was so unique about David's line is all the other nations around Israel, they would have limited dynasties. A a family would be uh, in charge for a couple generations. Someone would kill them all off and then another family would come into play, but not David's. The line of David, it seems as if the very hand of God was guiding it across hundreds of years. But Many of David's descendants forgot God. But God still couldn't forget his promise. And 400 years after this promise that we just read... After the Davidic kings in Jerusalem turned their hearts consistently from God, God allowed a group of people called the Babylonians to come and destroy Jerusalem and carry the people off into exile. God's people were no longer a majority in their own land, but they were a minority in a foreign land, in a culture that didn't share their values, their framework, their traditions. Talk about anxiety, everybody. When I think about that, I realize that in many ways their experience is similar to our own because as followers of Christ, we do not live in a nation that is predominantly Christian anymore, and Christ followers are a minority in our culture as a whole. But even when that's the case, we're tempted to let anxiety become absorbed over all that. What did the Israelite prophets remind Israel even in their anxiety in the foreign land where they were powerless? They brought them back to God's promise to David. And in Jeremiah 33, Jeremiah was speaking to all of these who were in exile. He says, The days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will fulfill the good purpose I have made to the people of Israel and Judah. And in those days, and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from whose line? David's line. And he will do what is just and right in the land. And in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. For this is what the Lord says. David will never fail to have a man sit on the throne of Israel. Oh, so this promise is about way more than just a string of kings coming from David. It's about way more than just Solomon. But he's saying right here that this promise referred to the the coming Christ, the Messiah, the one called Jesus who is forever. For it is Jesus who descended from the line of David. It was Jesus who said that he in his own body was the temple of God that had the very house of God. It is Jesus who is called God's son as God promised he would be. And it is Jesus who claimed an imperishable kingdom from his heavenly father. Oh, But there was a moment when a lot of people who had that anticipation that maybe he was in fulfillment of this promise when Jesus was arrested... And at the hands of kings and kingdoms, put on a cross and killed, leading many to believe, well, maybe he is just a self-proclaimed yet fraudulent Messiah like the rest. But it was only Jesus who rose from that grave in God's power, appeared to many, ascended to heaven, and now at the right hand of God on the throne waits his day of return. He is the one we call the son of David. He is the one who's the firstborn among the dead, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And still today, whether we are a majority or a minority in times of peace or persecution, flourishing or struggling, Jesus is still on the throne. Still. Still. And when anxiety rages, we do not pray or worship a dead man, for he is very much alive. And all human powers will become history, but one king is forever. And so when we look back from Noah to Abraham, Abraham to Jacob, Jacob to Moses and the Israelites, Israelites to David, David to Jesus, there is not one promise of God that he has yet failed to fulfill. He can't fail. Meanwhile, at our moment in history, we're in a world that is anxiously spinning like one of those old school merry-go-rounds. Remember these guys? One of those things. When I was a kid, they had no speed control on those. So you jump on. And all of a sudden, some kid decides to grab the edge of it and just spin it as hard as they can. And at first, it's fun and it's exciting until you start to feel queasy and lose your grip. And if they don't stop soon, what happens? You're either thrown off, you throw up, or both, right? Our anxious society works very much like one of these merry-go-rounds: it's a lot of folks coercing us to get on, others are getting on. It's fun. And when you initially do, it's kind of a nice adrenaline rush, right? The anxiety in our world is like, oh, man, this feels important. (laughs) And normally it's the strongest and fastest among us that decide they're going to be the ones pushing the hardest. But before you know it, we're left feeling pretty dizzy. We're flying off. We're not feeling so good. But the thing is, as we spin, we're not going anywhere, So what would it look like for us to be God's people, step off, So you know what, I'm going after God's heart instead? What could that look like? Well, first, in a relationship with God, we realize that we live in an anxious world. There's nothing that we can change about that. There's a lot, many opportunities all day long to absorb the anxiety around us. So in our relationship with God, how can we learn to set apart daily time to offload that honestly before God and be reminded of who he is? Jesus said, come to me, all who are burdened and heavy laden, I would say anxious, right? and I will give you rest. That we cannot be set apart people in this world if we don't have consistent time, a way out of the anxiety to allow him to recharge us and refill us. We're like David. We stick close to God's word. We can be honest with him about it. We ask him to remind us again. So that's in our relationship with God, remaining close. But second, an anxious society and it's quick to write people off, to judge them, to speak evil. And again, like, that's all a lot of people know. There's a lot of scared, anxious people in this world. And so sometimes that's the only thing they know to do, is if you disagree with them, to just write you off. But again, we can model another way. We have a king who is kind, who is full of grace, who speaks to build up, not to tear down. And as we get to know him, and as we read in his word how he responded in the anxious world, we can learn to do the same for one another and for anybody who comes among us. So that's God with each other. But last, when someone is thrown off the merry-go-round and left hurting, we can be there to help pick them up and invite them to experience another way. Man, we're not perfect. I'm not perfect but we know the eternal king who is, who says, come to me. And we invite people to listen to his invitation and come to. So how can we make space daily, especially if your days are loaded and you live in consistent, anxious environments? We gotta have that point where we can offload and come back to who our God is. And how can we learn to mirror that grace two people around us, and then demonstrate his compassion to those left dizzy and hurting in our world. That sounds like a set-apart people to me, doesn't it to you? All human powers will become history, but one king is forever. Will you stand with me? God, we want to be a people after your heart. But oftentimes when, when we absorb the anxiety around us, your heart, it becomes very foggy to know what you're doing and what you care about. It, it can be so easy for us to turn internally and, and take our eyes off of you. God, as we're learning to be people after your heart and as we're learning to be a set-apart people, I thank you for your grace over us. But Lord, I pray That you would continue to do that refining work in us. That, Lord, that we don't treat dependence on you as optional, but as our very life and our very breath, as a necessity if we are gonna be followers of you in this world. And as we do that, Lord, will you make us a people after your heart? May you make us a people who model a different way, a non anxious presence. A thermostat instead of a thermometer. Those who shift atmospheres instead of absorbing them. God, show us how to be those kinds of people so that the world may see you through us. In your holy name we pray, amen.